Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome back in action. Here we are closing out May, getting it to June. It's officially summer. Memorial Day is done. Hope you found some time to commemorate those who gave the ultimate sacrifice uh, for the country we all love so much. Uh, we got a big show coming your way this hour. We'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and uh, he's going to be talking about the big controversy, of course, that's happening with the impeachment of the Attorney General and where this came from, and it is overwhelming. This is why George P. Bush was running, because of the scandals in uh, A.G. Paxton's background, and now it came to fruition. Even Republicans want him out, and we'll see how that plays out. Memorial Day is done, and Republican presidential field finds the stride. Ron DeSantis starts trying to close out the yawning gap between him and Trump. I'm also going to talk about the debt deal framed out and transmania from sports to brand backlash. And this invisible moment, uh, this invisible movement seems to have no winners and making multiple business losers. At the latest is Target. Now Kohl's coming out with this rainbow pride flags, kids clothing. Uh, gender-fluid stuff that people want no part of as parents. I mean, I'm talking about widespread outrage. Target's lost $10 billion on the market cap. Why would they do this? Why would Kohl's Funk fall in place after that, after you saw the backlash from what happened with Budweiser? But let's begin with the debt ceiling. Had a chance to talk to Kevin McCarthy over the weekend. Uh, He believes that they're going to get a lot. They're going to get almost uh, every Republican voting. However, I'm listening to some from Chip Roy on down that are not on board with this. So what is actually in it? So what they got uh, is essentially this work requirements when it comes to getting SNAP benefits, when it comes to getting welfare. Uh, And when it comes to environmental permitting, it looks like they're going to speed up the process. First time in about 50 years, be able to get the pipelines done. Also, the windmills done. Also, the pipeline's going to help Joe Manchin, too. They're going to get something going through West Virginia, which gets these people uh, pumped up like you and I, because we believe natural gas is fantastic. Uh, So that's going to help. Student loan repayments. uh, It's going to start again in three months, but they're going to let the courts play out the rest of the way. A lot of Republicans outraged by that. The IRS rollbacks. This year, there's going to be no funding of the 87,000 new IRS agents. So they knocked the funding down from $80 billion to do this to $70 billion. Now, they haven't trouble getting these agents to begin with. So they handle it in one year. What's so significant about one year? They believe, Republicans believe they're going to get a new president. And they believe they're going to win it. And they're going to handle it then. So what do you do? Do you sit there and let the country default because of the 87,000 IRS agents, which is insane? It must, 
IRS, probably some great people there. But nobody likes people coming down on them on taxes, giving them huge fines. No one likes writing tax checks, even though it's part of the process with this country. So they're doing this anyway. So they, they roll it back for one year. That's not enough for a lot of Republicans in the House. Now, COVID callbacks, they're going to get about $30 billion of unspent relief money. They're going to claw it back, and uh, they're going to uh, have some other cuts, some other programs, but they're not going to touch veterans' health benefits or COVID-19 treatments and research, which is bizarre. But, you know, the COVID, but the whole thing with uh, veterans' health care, they were just trying to say, because of that bill that came out of the House, that Republicans were uh, trying to hurt veterans or the Pentagon. The one thing people are upset about, like Lindsey Graham, they're upset about what's happened with the budget. They did not get the increase in defense spending, which we all need. Here's Lindsey Graham, cut five. I am not going to do a deal that marginally reduces the number of IRS agents in the future at the expense of sinking the Navy. The Biden defense budget takes the Navy from 298 to 291 ships. The Navy suggests that we need 373 ships to deal with the threats we face as a nation. How do you get to 373 ships if you're spending below inflation? So that's where he's focused. Everyone's got different focuses. Probably the most angry guy. And I like that he predates it with Kevin's a friend. Because Kevin McCarthy was in there doing deals. Keep in mind, he sat there and talked to everybody for 45 minutes after. The biggest, the largest uh, outlet on them. He's out there uh, grinding it out. And you know what he's doing? He's negotiating with the president and said, I will not negotiate on a debt ceiling. So right away, it's a win because he negotiated and the one thing I keep in mind, I'm going to talk to Kevin McCarthy, and I talked to Kevin McCarthy on, on Fox and Friends, and I'll bring back some of those clips. But one thing about Kevin McCarthy is that he's got a small majority in one branch of government. You can't pretend you're going to get everything you want. Now, I'm upset, Lindsay, anytime you cut defense spending, you don't increase it past the, the cost of living or inflation. You think I'm happy about that? I'm never. And in the big picture, I think they're going to find a way to get this done and get some more defense spending in there. But the main thing they have right now is recruiting, and I'd like to see their the whole system audited because we have a situation with the modernizations of weapons and things like that where it's very hard to, to replenish, and these companies have no competition. But we'll talk about that at a future date. Here is Joe Biden talking about the deal that he was not in on, but yet he ended his G7 trip. After G7 ends early, they don't go to Australia or Papua New Guinea, which is really important, even though it sounds like a comical name. Uh, he blew that off because he had to go back to do the debt ceiling deal. But he didn't even sit in on the deal. He went to Camp David, got one. And the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. And this is a deal is good news, for, I believe, you'll see, for the American people. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is – one thing I think is important, no matter who wins, if you rub the other person's face, face in politics, you're not only doing that, you're doing it to the whole party, which is up, uh, which is just upgrades the anger on all sides. And the one thing I give the president credit for, he didn't do that. Cut to Kevin McCarthy. More than 95% of all those in the conference were very excited. But think about this. We finally were able to cut spending. We're the first Congress to vote for cutting spending year over year. So you cut that back. You fully fund the veterans. You fully fund defense. But you take that non-defense spending all the way back lower than 22 levels. Now you get work requirements for TANF and SNAP, where the Democrats said that was a red line. 
Yeah. Uh, he thinks he's going to get 95 percent of all the Republican votes. But Chip Roy is out. Matt Rosendale is out. It looks like uh, Massey is going to be the key. He gave Massey a lot of what he wanted, kind of got name-checked, too, in a press conference because Thomas Massey has yet to give a position, but he's on the all-important rules committee, and they got to get out of the rules committee before they can get to the floor to have a vote for it. A lot of Democrats are going to cross and going to help out Republicans get McCarthy. That's always been considered a disaster in Republican circles and Democratic circles, too, to need, to need support from the other side, but they're going to need it. I don't think there's any question about it, but what I think has happened is there's a little bit more respect for McCarthy and others for the Freedom Caucus and others. Ralph Norman is against it. It seems that's pretty clear, too. Uh, so Massey, Massey wanted a couple of things. Uh, he touted the, a provision, did Kevin McCarthy, to hold the line on appropriations bills uh, pushed by Massey. They can only upgrade by 1% uh, uh, of spending bills. So... People are going to have to pay go, have a pay go. If you're going to decide to increase spending, you got to tell me what you're going to cut. And that's something that he wanted. We'll see what happens. I, I just hope people do the right thing for the country. I understand you have to represent a conservative or a moderate community, but you have to understand, too, that Kevin McCarthy's got to do a deal. You can never get everything you wanted. Now, I know Chip Roy's been really critical of it, so we'll have to see. The other big story, and I had a chance to see Ron DeSantis at a memorial event in Florida. Um, he's pretty happy. I mean, he's going to start. He's setting up his schedule. Uh, he's going to start competing. It's no longer what if he gets in, when is he going to fight back? He's taken on Trump big time, and he's taken on Trump on Disney. He's taken on Trump on uh, on COVID because Donald Trump came out with a statement indicated that Cuomo was better than DeSantis when it comes to COVID. Nobody on the planet, I don't even think go outside Governor Cuomo and maybe Chris Cuomo, thinks that that is in fact the case. And I think Ron DeSantis coming in saying uh, Trump spent too much is also wrong because Trump wasn't really spending. You know, it's Congress that's spending. He puts together a budget. He got handed a budget a few times. He was forced to suck down a couple of omnibus bills. But that came from the Congress. Uh, when it comes to building the wall, I also don't think you can criticize Donald Trump because he did everything possible with only getting one point something billion dollars from a Republican House and Senate. But. Uh, DeSantis is uh, uh, on the offense. Now, going after each on illogical means is ridiculous. Republicans going after Republicans on things that should not be a problem, I think, are a problem. Uh, other uh, former Trumpers now backing DeSantis. you got Ken Cuccinelli, Steve Cortez, as I mentioned, Chip Roy, Thomas Massey, Bob Good. These are very conservative guys. So DeSantis doesn't have a lot of support over Trump. Why? Because Trump is, is a lot more popular in a lot of these a lot of these districts in him, but he does have, uh, but he does have some support in key areas. The other thing is, did, did you see that Ron DeSantis raised about eight million dollars, eight million dollars ever since he announced? And I think that number's continuing to grow. Here is uh, Governor DeSantis on Trump. Cut nine. He said he was going to eliminate the national debt when he ran in 2016. He ended up adding almost eight trillion to the debt in four years. And so he's running to the left. He, he's opposed to Florida's fetal heartbeat bill, which I signed into law, which says an unborn child gets legal protections when there's a detectable heartbeat, similar to a bill that was done in Iowa uh, and most recently in South Carolina. You know, he's taking the position uh, to oppose that. So it seems like he's running to the left. Uh, and I have always been somebody that's just been more than conservative principles. Yeah. Um, 
He's, he's running to the left, maybe, of Ron DeSantis. He's gone uh, very strong on abortion. He's gone very strong against woke. He's gone very strong against uh, appropriate books and libraries, not banning books. But you know that you alienate some moderates with some of these things. But Ron DeSantis is definitive. I mean, he outside Ukraine, the guy doesn't waffle. Here's Trump talking about DeSantis not being great as a governor. Cut seven. When the Ron DeSanctimonious facts come out, you will see that he's better than most Democrat governors, but very average at best compared to Republican governors. Hmm. Well, let's look at the polls. I I think he's probably the best governor in the state uh, and in the country. Donald Trump killing it, 62 percent, according to the Emerson poll. Uh, DeSantis got 20 percent. Pence has got 5 percent, but not officially. And Nikki Haley, 5 percent. We'll be doing a town hall on CNN. Uh, Tim Scott on 3 percent. Ramaswamy at 3. Sununu will decide in two weeks to get in. H.A. Hutchinson, great guy, but he's not going to resonate. Maybe the governor of North Dakota is going to get in, too. So someone else at 2 percent. But right now it looks like Biden and it looks like Trump uh, back again. Now, whatever you want to say about Donald Trump, you can't say he lost his fastball. Nobody thinks that Joe Biden hasn't lost his uh, has, hasn't lost his fastball, and that would be key. Here's more from DeSantis uh, talking about what he was talking about on Fox and Friends yesterday. Um, here it is. Now, keep in mind, he's got 40 points to make up. So did Barack Obama. I think it's so early, still spring training. I'm not sure he can do it, but I'm also not sure that there's not going to be other people in this race from Tim Scott and Nikki Haley that really, really make a run at this, they start tearing each other's eyes out, meaning the top two. Cut 10. I think a lot of what he's doing is showing uh, everybody that, that he understands that um, I've got a good chance to beat him because he doesn't criticize anybody else now. It's only me. Uh, they wouldn't do that if they didn't think that I had a chance because I think they realize uh, I am offering folks uh, a record of achievement that, that's second to none. Yeah, uh, and now this when people say, "What is he going to do?" I mean, this we're getting a look at what what's he going to do. I mean, this is DeSantis is going to go at Trump, and obviously Trump has been going at DeSantis. So we'll see if he's actually game planned this out. Where are your vulnerabilities? Did they do opposition research after talking to some other people who know the mechanics of winning in these states? The one thing they say they're a little surprised about. Ron DeSantis, with all the money he has and the experienced people in his camp, no one's really gotten ahead and pre-gamed in South Carolina. Uh, looked over in Nevada, done a lot of work outside New Hampshire and Iowa. And the, and the camps that are good are the ones that are looking 10 states down and saying, well, we got to get this far. Now, I know everyone's going to collapse if they're nowhere in Iowa and they're nowhere in New Hampshire. Most people, most of these candidacies are going to collapse. I mean, maybe Nikki Haley and Tim Scott hold on if they don't do great in either one of those because South Carolina is up next or, or close to next. And it could be winner-take-all, and they could really catapult themselves forward. It is winner-take-all, by the way, in 17 states, which I think will just perpetu- uh, perpetuate people dropping out early. I think that was the goal. Whoever it is, to get out early and unify, Democrats did a good job on that. I still don't know how they pulled it off, and everyone collapsed uh, around Joe Biden, who was uh, invisible and awful in New Hampshire. He was a non-factor in Iowa, but a, a fear of Bernie Sanders had them saying, Joe Biden's the only one who can win. What people also say, and I'm not really sure why, is Joe Biden is also 
the main reason, uh, Donald Trump is the main reason why Joe Biden is the nominee. So listen, uh, a couple of things on Biden. The president can muster just 60% of the Democratic vote. This is the latest CNN poll. You have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at now 20%, Marion Williamson at 8 or 9%. Whatever you think RFK, he, he's not, that's not a legitimate alternative. And Marianne Williamson is not a legitimate alternative. And he, they're still doing better than comparatively Tim Scott, Ramaswamy, and Nikki Haley. That's how weak this guy is. We're ambitious governor like in Kentucky on down. Doesn't stand up and go, yeah, uh, put me in, coach. I'm jumping in. I don't care what the Democrats want. I don't get it. But let's, we'll, maybe we'll find out in the next, com- next coming weeks. Listen, so glad you're here. We're, we're ready to kick off this summer season. And 2023 is almost, uh, the field is almost complete. We'll discuss that uh, and take your calls. And then we're at the bottom of the hour of Colonel Allen West. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Uh, President Biden uh, has delivered a result that avoids a catastrophic default that prevents us from our economy crashing uh, and stops the extreme MAGA Republicans from triggering a job-killing recession, which, as we've seen over the last week or two, increasingly seemed to have been a position that they were taking for political reasons. So Hakeem Jeffries was dealt out willingly, and Mitch McConnell was dealt out willingly, and they got a deal. And I think Mitch McConnell was just really to take a deal. Let's just raise the debt ceiling. That's just the way he does things. Like, hey, I'm not in the majority. What am I going to do? You got a slight lead. How much How much hand do you actually have? Uh, so Mitch McConnell kind of just sat this out. But he came out uh, for this. He says, um, I, uh, the debt deal increase comes with serious steps to rein in Washington Democrats' addiction to, re- to reckless spending. The agreement the Speaker reached and the President Biden sets meaningful limits on the administration's spending agenda. At the same time, it secures permitting reforms and reinforces the link between federal assistance and work. The Senate must act swiftly and pass the agreement without an unnecessary delay. And what people are saying, for able-bodied people of a certain age, not a single-parent situation, there's going to be a work requirement when it comes to SNAP provisions. Listen, Democrats hate that. This woman, Lindsay Owens, the executive director of the Liberal Groundwork Collaborative in Washington, criticized the deal, said forcing budget cuts in domestic programs is bad. Lindsey Graham, as I mentioned last last segment, he's upset about it because uh, raising the debt limit for two years he can deal with until 2025, by the way, until the election's over, which is smart, but we can go up another $4 trillion. I hope we don't. But Lindsey Graham says, listen, unless you're going to increase defense spending, I'm not for it. And you decreased it, so I'm against it. Nobody got everything. I'm upset about the defense part, but like so many, so much other, so much more. We'll see what Colonel Allen West says and the latest controversial in Texas. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for being here, everybody.
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The evidence is substantial. It is alarming and unnerving. No one person should be above the law, least not the top law enforcement official of the state of Texas. We each took an oath of office. Attorney General Paxson took an oath of office. He violated that oath. He put the interests of himself above the laws of the state of Texas. So that is just two Republican lawmakers, and it was an overwhelming vote. I think he only got about 23 votes to stay. Uh, voted to impeach Ken Paxton as Attorney General of Texas. So a guy wins back-to-back uh, elections. This is why George P. Bush is running against him. He said he's uh, sullied in scandal. The scud never came out till after the election, so he wins easily. And now even Republicans are looking at what he did, paid for play, and other accusations. We'll see what ultimately happens. The governor doesn't go to bat for him. Donald Trump does. And now this guy's in a lot of trouble, about to lose his job, which almost never happens with Republican attorney generals in Texas. Joining us now is a man who now calls Texas home, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He also is a congressman in Florida. So, uh, uh, Colonel, always great to hear from you. Your thoughts on Paxton's fate. Well, it's good to be with you, Brian, and hopefully you enjoyed a great and honorable uh, Memorial Day. Look, uh, during the primary election a couple of years ago, well, last year or so, uh, I did not support Ken Paxton in the uh, in the primary. I supported Louis Gomer because I knew that these things would eventually come up. But I think what angers a lot of people here in the state of Texas is the secrecy upon which this was done. There was this House Journal Investigation Committee that was appointed and no one knew about it. And then all of a sudden, here in the last two weeks, they come out with their findings based upon the investigative team that they had. And then the next thing you know, uh, Ken Paxton is brought up on 20 counts and articles of impeachment. And a lot of this stuff goes back to, you know, two or so election cycles ago. I know. And, and, and it has, you know, he continued to go along and, and get reelected. So there's a lot of questions about it. But I think the thing that really kind of makes you scratch your head is that uh, there was 121 people that voted to impeach him. Uh, there were more Democrats that voted than Republicans to impeach him. Now, you would think in a Republican-controlled uh, state house that maybe the you know that would be a little different, but it just goes to show the amount of power and influence that Democrats have here in the uh, state house in, in Texas. So it was 61 uh, Democrats, 60 Republicans, and then 23 Republicans voted against the impeachment. And there were two that uh, were present and did not vote at all. So yeah, the governor didn't do anything either. Were they tight? No. I would not say that they were tight. Uh, I think that uh, for whatever reason, they, they had two different courses that they went upon. And remember that, you know, Ken Paxton is elected in office, the governor is elected in office. But, you know, you didn't really see them working together on many things. You saw the uh, attorney general going out and, you know, bringing a lot of lawsuits and things of that nature against the Obama and Biden administration, something that uh, Governor Abbott did when he was attorney general. So I don't think that there was a very close relationship there. I think it was a pretty deep chasm. So uh, let's uh, pivot. So we'll see what happens there. I also thought George mm-hmm. P. Bush was a great option and he couldn't get out of the primary, had a runoff, but couldn't get out of the primary. Um, I don't think ethics would have been an issue, uh, but too bad all this stuff doesn't come out. Uh, and then 
probably wouldn't have been elected and you would have avoided all this impeachment, which costs a lot of money and keeps the state distracted at a time in which we need all hands on deck, uh, being that it's a border state. So Governor DeSantis is now in, running for president. He trails Donald Trump by 40 points. Can he close the gap? Yeah, I think he can close the gap. I remember back in 2008 when everyone thought it was Hillary Clinton's election uh, primary to win. And then along comes this guy, Barack Hussein Obama, and next thing you know, he's the president. He gets two terms. So now it's just a matter of being focused. It's just the same as when you are playing a, a football game, basketball game, whatever, and you have a big deficit. You don't try to win it with you know every shot or, or every uh, play. You just continue on, and uh, you try to incrementally pick up uh, speed and, and pick up ground where you can. So this is very early in the process, and the first uh, debate will be in August, and we'll see where things go from there. But there's a long ways between now and right. next March or April. So I'm looking at these two attacks, and they're both wrong. I'll, I'll pay the first one for President Trump. This is what President Trump's actually uh, post uh, put up on Truth Social. Cut three. How about the fact that he had the third most deaths of any state having to do with the China virus or COVID? Even Cuomo did better. He was number four. He shut down everything, including the beaches. Come on. We remember the whole country shut down, and he was the first to open up. There's not a person on the planet who thinks the president's being candid there. No, and it's sad because when you really do the per capita evaluation, I mean, Florida is way ahead, and we know the problems. Uh, Janice Dean, you know, lost her her in-laws and, and due to Cuomo's uh, incompetence. But, you know, this is what we should not have going on. You should be talking about what you're for, not what you're against. And I don't think that President Trump wants to open up the Pandora's box of uh, COVID because people can start talking about, well, you gave us Dr. Fauci, you gave us Dr. Burke, you gave us, you know, this questionable uh, shot and and everything else. So uh, you you might want to stay in a a particular lane on this one. Well, here, here it is. Governor DeSantis, cut five. Well, look, I would I would just say push back a little bit. I mean, I think he did great for three years, but when he turned the country over to Fauci in March of 2020, that destroyed millions of people's lives. And in Florida, we were one of the few that stood up, cut against the grain, took incoming fire from media, bureaucracy, the left, even a lot of Republicans. And that's true, but I don't really think Trump turned the country over to Fauci. In fact, his pushback got a wide-wed consternation. How dare you push back against a doctor? How dare you stand up and mm-hmm. contradict him at a press conference? So I think that those fights to both men should come from the left and should easily be swatted down. Yeah, they, they should, but right now you've got two battleships and they're just going broadsides at each other when uh, they should really be talking about you know the one person that has brought this country to the brink of you know, fiscal demise and the border security that is uh, being destroyed is is Joe Biden. But, you know, look, it's going to be a very vicious primary. I think we all know that. And going back to what we talked about in the beginning, there's going to be a very vicious primary season here in the state of Texas uh, because what we are seeing transpiring through our legislative session that just ended yesterday, this impeachment process that a lot of people don't agree with. So uh, it's going to be an interesting GOP primary season. 
So let's talk about Ukraine. I think they're about to queue up a major offensive. In the meantime, mm-hmm. last night, we're trying to get confirmation. They had a drone attack inside Moscow to the richest neighborhood in Moscow, uh, which is probably track housing like in Leventown, Long Island. But <laughs> it, so we're trying to get confirmation. But, I mean, I think this is done. Michael Waltz said, I, I'm not going to say it. It might be a head fake. But you're going to blow up Kiev and attack 24 times in one month. You got to know that Moscow is going to get hit sooner or later. Are you against this move? Well, look once again. When you this is about the warfare, and if you're going to say on on the side of Russia, you're going to go after innocent uh, civilians. You're going to have these indiscriminate attacks. It's just the same as what did the United States of America do in response to Pearl Harbor? Well, we went we bombed Tokyo with the Doolittle raid. And some people can say, well, you probably shouldn't have done that. Well, maybe they shouldn't have, you know, attacked Pearl Harbor, even though it was a military uh, 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 target. So this is what warfare is. And if you're going to you know, say that I'm going to conduct this unrestricted warfare, then you open up yourselves to the exact same type of attacks what's, uh, as well. So this is going to be a very intense fight, and I think that Russia believes that they can bleed out Ukraine, but at some point in time, the European nations need to step in, and they need to quell this little, uh, this, uh, this, ins- uh, no, I'm going to say insurrection. But, this but fight the only way they- to quell it, the only way to quell it is for them to get the hell out of Ukraine. Well, that, that's what I agree with, and and if it if it means that uh, you look at returning to Crimea, if maybe they have certain provinces in eastern Ukraine that are more Russian speaking, maybe that's a, a jump off point. But I would say the most important thing is you go back to what the territorial sovereignty was of Ukraine uh, back before Vladimir Putin made his incursion during the Obama administration. So Russia has been the aggressor. And I think that this is something where the world, uh, the European nations, the United Nations, but of course they're not going to do anything, should come together and say that the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine should be respected and it should be honored and Russia needs to return their forces and uh, get out of their their territory. That, That should be the global response. So do you remember uh, everybody knows the Wagner Group, this private mercenary army yeah. that was evidently 10, yeah. 10, 20 feet tall. We killed 200 of their guys when they started moving on our guys in Syria. Then they start moving through Africa. Then they start moving into Ukraine and they're getting obliterated and they want to start draining the prisons and putting them in. And they finally got Bakhmud and then they just turned it over to the Russians and everyone's like, what did we get? We don't even, we can't even hold it. Now there's another private army started in Russia, and they're recruiting from the regular army. It's Gazprom's, this huge gas companies, these energy companies have private security companies. In recent months, they're going to come up with their own battle plan to help Russia. What's going on over there? Well, I mean, they're they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. But again, the number one thing we could do to end this whole thing is to restore American energy independence. The minute that we undermine our own energy independence, we gave an up, upper hand to, to Russia and to others, uh, and we see what is happening. So if we want to put a kibosh on this whole thing, let's get to drilling. Let's get to you know sending our liquefied natural gas back over to these countries that, that we did previously and undermine Vladimir Putin's ability to fuel and fund these uh, ventures. Yeah, he's going to be doing that. Uh, I, I actually think that we're going to be talking in August, and I bet you they're going to get they're going to get all the way to Crimea. The Russians are losing uh, steam in their economy; they're losing momentum. Yep. They put one tank in their May parade, and they had to roll it out of a museum. 
Uh, now you have the fact that Wagner Group is outright fighting and saying that they created a monster in Ukraine. You said if they had 4,000, they now have 400,000. That's the Wagner Group whose leader is tight with Putin. So I'm wide open to thinking they're trying to manipulate the West, but I don't think results are going to be lying shortly, which would be great for this country. No, it, it would be great for the country. And I think that right now when you look at what the Ukrainians are doing, they're standing up against, you know, some really tough odds. And I think that Vladimir Putin is starting to have drawn himself into a very tough box. And I don't know if he's going to be able to come out. I know a lot of people talk about the threats of nuclear war and everything of that nature. I think that that is more far-fetched than anything else. But I think right now, if we can restore that territorial sovereignty of Ukraine and enable them to do that, I'm not talking about continuing to write blank checks, but this a, a global response that can help them uh, to push back on what Russia has done. That'll send a message not just to Russia, but also to China. Right. Uh, they have turned down our requests uh, when we're in Singapore to meet with our Secretary of Defense. So their counterpart uh, to Austin turned down an opportunity to create up to create this meeting and then create up lines of communication to de-escalate should something happen. Does this is this pathetic? We're begging them to talk after the spy balloons and the belligerent way in which they act. I, I'm embarrassed. Well, that's what we have lost. We have lost the, the moral high ground. We have lost that sense of a strong deterrent. I mean, think about, you know, what the, the Air Force and everyone else putting out is uh, telling people to make sure they have more pride events on uh, military installations instead of us worrying about our military capability and capacity to defeat our enemies if it ever comes to that, but at least send a message that we do have the ability to, to defeat you. So we're sending the wrong message to Russia, China, Iran, North North Korea, Islamic jihadists, and, you know, the border is still wide open, and we still have to be concerned about all these single military-age males, to include now a lot of Chinese single military-age males that are coming to this country illegally. Go get them, Colonel Allen West. We appreciate it. Always. All right. Thank you, uh, Brian. God you, bless you. You got it. Meanwhile, we come back. Your turn, one 408 You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're taking, uh, taking the temperature of the debt deal. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is trying to push it hard. Will it get out of committee? It's going to be anything but easy. It could all come down to Congressman Tom Massey. We'll discuss that when we come back. Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I think it's strange that they would bring so much attention uh, to his Twitter space by talking about the glitch. But I didn't see anybody, you know, pushing back on the things that you just said. Like, they should be presenting their policies right. after you hear Ron DeSantis print, present his for, for an hour. I don't hear none of that. Everybody's just trying to clown him for the glitch. But all you're doing is bringing attention to all of the things that you just said. Now, like Ted right. said, they're laughing and they're joking about the small things. But the things that they should be talking about, they're not discussing. And it seems like, especially with the Democratic Party, that's what it always happens. Yeah, tell me That's what right. y'all doing. Ron just told That's us right. what he's doing for an hour. Tell me what y'all doing. What a great point. Uh, Charlemagne the God weighing in on his uh, morning show. It's a great point. And, you know, we're talking about coverage. As Mark Thiessen said, he said 3.2 million people watched that ridiculous Twitter spaces thing, which was all audio. I wouldn't have made that decision. In fact, talked to some people in the DeSantis camp, and they thought, yeah, that's not my decision. But 
it, it's done. But the bottom line is he has policies. He goes deep into all of them as well as a, a checklist on accomplishments. And what he's trying to say is at this point, we're not into the glitz and glamour. We're into substance. And if somebody comes back and just mocks the fact that I don't like the venue, I didn't like the size of the crowd, I didn't like the outfit you were wearing. At one point, you want to just say, well, what, what, did, actually, what did he actually say? So uh, DeSantis, by, by the way, not bothering him at all. I watched him yesterday at a big Memorial Day event. No notes, walked up, spoke for about 10 minutes, and wasn't trying to tap your emotional heartstrings, but basically just talked about what it means to be an American, went and spoke, and he was not even the keynote speaker. And then he stayed the entire ceremony, which he did not have to do. Everybody would have understood the sitting governor who's running for president of the United States had to leave early, and he didn't. So that's a positive. The other thing is, is that I do not dismiss or go to sleep on Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or maybe even Chris Christie could have a surge. He could be getting in. It looks like he has a super PAC ready to go. So you don't have a super PAC unless you're going to run, especially if you're not even a sitting governor. You can't even say I'm I'm running for governor again or Senate or something to that nature, which he's never going to be able to do in New Jersey unless, in fact, he moves. So, But Trump, on the other hand, looks better every day because of Joe Biden. Not because Biden's old. It's because all his policies are bad. They're detached. Communication is awful. People look at inflation. They look at the, what's happening with the world is on the march. They're coming up with basically a network of anti-Christ countries. They're trying to get Saudi Arabia involved with Iran, with China, with Russia. And they, along with maybe even Brazil and Venezuela, will begin to unite everybody who's against America. And that's happening not under Trump. That's under the the unifier with all the international experience, with that great Rolodex. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com right now. Questions and comments. I'll read them on the air. Don't move. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. 1-866-408-7669, the number to call to be on the show. I look forward to getting all your uh, your questions and comments. This hour, we're going to be joined by Chad Pergram in about 15 minutes. If there's anyone... Who knows more about Washington? They are not, have not walked the planet yet. And number two, he knows inside the deck ceiling debate, he does have some reporting that shows it's going to have enough votes to pass, but it's first got to get out of committee. And then Adam Bowler will be with us. Uh, Adam Bowler served in the Trump administration, helped negotiate peace deals in Afghanistan. He's got some really hard and fast opinions about what's going on in Ukraine. So we'll have the, all that this hour. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I came in here two days ago and my seven-year-old, who's non-binary, saw it and said, look, mom, it's pride. They're going to celebrate me. I can't bring them here anymore, at least for the entire month of June. We're not supposed to negotiate with the terrorists. Right. Uh, Rachel Fever. Uh, that kid is doomed. Seven years old and he's non-binary. Please. Transmania, from sports to brand backlash, and this movement seems to have no winners and is making multiple business losers. How does this end? 
Number two. There is so much in this that's positive, and measure it to all the other debt ceilings. When Republicans had the presidency, the Senate, and the House, did they ever cut spending? No, they increased it. We were able to do this when the president said he wasn't even going to talk to us. Uh, that's true, and there are gains, and that's why the Wall Street Journal and New York Post to say sign the deal Republicans, but so far they aren't. Debt deal framed out, many Republicans and Dems want it kicked out. Why is everyone unhappy? It's called compromise, perhaps. Outside defense, it seems like the best deal the GOP could get because they only have one-third and a small majority of that of the power in Washington. Number one. How about the fact that he had the third most deaths of any state having to do with the China virus or COVID? Even Cuomo did better. He was number four. They're very bizarre. I mean, first of all, Florida had less excess mortality than California or New York. Uh, That is bizarre. And it is bizarre criticism uh, to go after DeSantis on COVID. 2024 Memorial Day is over. The Republican presidential field finds Finally hits their stride. DeSantis starts trying to close the gap between himself and Trump. Wasting no time going back in his one-time ally. I believe it's more than a two-person race. I think that Nikki Haley is doing some great work in Iowa. And if she gets some momentum and gets results in Iowa, she'll be fine in New Hampshire. And then we'll see what happens in South Carolina where she's not going to swing and miss. She's got Tim Scott. The guy can campaign. He can talk. He understands the issues. Let's see if he wants to tackle and has better answers when it comes to abortion. All right. So far saying uh, going all over the map on that is as bad as Governor DeSantis being all over the map on Ukraine. Uh, It's a little bit of a credibility problem. But the biggest story right now in Washington, as they come back to town, Michael Waltz was with us this morning, as well as Congressman Rutherford on Fox and Friends. I was from a diner in uh, Ponte Vedra and he was on the set and he's going to fly back and they're going to see if this thing is going to get outside. It's going to get outside the committee process. So what did Exactly. Kevin McCarthy pull off. He got what he got suspends the debt ceiling till January 1st, 2025 rolls back non-defense discretionary spending to 2022 level. So it's actually a cut in spending limits, top line federal spending to 1% growth increases spending on defense funding and benefits. But it isn't the defense increase is not enough to cover inflation. That's where Lindsey Graham has bailed on this, as is Michael Waltz increases uh, work requirements when it comes to getting food stamps uh, from 49 to 54. So therefore, you unless you have a situation where it doesn't make it possible, handicapped, or if you have a single-parent fit situation, you got to work for your free food. How about that? Reduces SNAP waivers from 12% to 8%, claws back $29 billion in unspent COVID-19 funds, which is great. All that wasted money when, when Biden came into office after Trump. Student loan repayments start in 30 days, excuse me, 60 days. So next year, it's going to work its way through the courts. That bothered some people that it wasn't totally stripped out. The courts can take care of it. you got to get a give and take. So they decided to just take a break on that one. So environmental permitting is huge. They're going to start permitting, make it easy to build refineries and oil wells. Also, windmills, that's part of it. And also pipelines especially the one in West Virginia that was just magically left out of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now they're going to also take those IRS agents. Is $80 billion to hire, 87000 Now they got it down to $70 billion and say, don't hire any this year. Their hope is, we'll kill it when, I become, when a Republican becomes president. But until now, this is the hand you play. So as imperfect as it is, I was shocked to see some of the anger coming at, guess who, Kevin McCarthy, because he decided to, 
do this deal. And doing the deal, I think, is by this definition, doing the deal is something that you got to learn to do. Joe Biden, cut 19. And the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. And this is a deal is good news for, I believe, you'll see, for the American people. So he thinks Hakeem Jeffries upset about it. His left wing is keeping quiet, but they're upset about it. Republicans are not keeping quiet. The ones that don't like it are speaking up big time. And I think it was Chip Roy on last night. Cut 35. There's going to be a block of us that are a no. And I hope that more Republicans will join with us and stand up. I would like to say that we should kill this. We should move forward. We should pass a short-term uh, debt ceiling change. We should sweep the COVID money, sweep the IRS money, buy some time for Janet Yellen, and let's do it right. Let's not lift the debt. $4 trillion. Again, I want to repeat that for America. $4 trillion. We are going to have an uncapped, actually, debt ceiling that will equal $4 trillion that expires in a lame duck. In, on January 1st, 2025, and for that, we do not get subsidy policy reforms on any of the green tax subsidies, the corporate cronyism. We don't get any changes with respect to the, uh, with the, um, you know, the other things in terms okay. of the student loans, right? We're not getting rid of the student loans. We're punting that to the courts. Why are we doing that? Well, because you can't get everything you want. So Chip Roy obviously didn't get enough that he wanted. Now, Tom Massey is interesting because he did get some of the reforms that he wanted. He got name-checked. Right away uh, in one of the meetings, because they know you probably lost Chip Roy. You lost Congressman Norman. Well, you got to go get Massey. Why? Because you went back to 2022 spending. We had an increase uh, spending as a country. So they believed that possibly uh, that they would be able to uh, get away with getting Massey on just that overall. John Rutherford on with, on with me. He is going to vote for it, too. And here's why. The congressman from Florida, cut 40. Year over year, spending is down, will be down. For the first time in history, Congress will actually spend less year over year. I'm not talking about the 10-year, you know, Because you go back to 2022 funding? Yes. And, the, which, and we cut about 55 to $57 billion of non-discretionary or uh, non-defense discretionary. Right. So uh, that's where we stand. I want to take a time out so we have a good, a good amount of time with Chad Pergram. He's going to bring us inside this deal. I do want to say on 2024, Chris Christie just sent me a message that there's a super back forming for him. So he'll be in. Sununu says, give me two weeks. And I think Mike Pence has gone remarkably silent. I am not sure what's going on there, but I thought he was a lock. I thought he was more of a lock than DeSantis. But I was shocked by Pompeo as well. And by the way, if you want to get the podcast, if you ever can't listen live, or you just want to subscribe, I hope you do, BrianKilmeadShow.com. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There's no new taxes. There's no new government programs. Would I wanted to cut more? Yes. But I was only able to work at less than 15% of the budget. So I'm not quite sure what else they wanted to go. 72% of this is off to the other side. We were able to plus up defense and the veterans. 
but that non-defense without veterans is actually sure. lower than what we spent in 2022. I think we've got to look at where the victories are. We don't spend another $4 trillion. We, uh, we allow them to keep going forward right. until um, January, but you've got those extraordinary measures. I think if we've got a new president in there and a, new, and a Senate majority, we're going to finally be able to tackle this. I would like to look right. at everything and put us on a better path. This is just the first step. Uh, there you go. Uh, that is what the speaker said to us this morning on Fox and Friends. He's got an uphill battle with some of the members of the Rules Committee and some others, but he's supposed to have enough to pass should it go into the general floor. No, no idea how it would fly having Democrats bail him out or, or pass the bill uh, to raise the debt ceiling. With me right now is Chad Pergram. Chad, right now, do you believe this thing has a chance to get out of committee? Is it all up to Congressman Massey? Well, it could be. I mean, it's not unheard of to have members who are on the Rules Committee who are in the majority who oppose a bill or oppose a rule to vote no. Um, That has happened. The question here, and you hear me say it all the time, it's about the math. The math does not work in this uh, circumstance if all three of them vote. And you might say, well, they'll have the votes to pass it on the floor. Yes, but you can't get the bill onto the floor if you can't get it out of the Rules Committee. Uh, I thought it was interesting Sunday morning that uh, Speaker McCarthy name-checked Thomas Massey about one of the provisions in the bill about, uh, you know, cutting the spending, that that was his idea. In other words, the implication is we put your thing in the bill, therefore you should vote for it. Um, that was kind of, you know, what was what was implied there. And I was told by a pretty good Republican source that they thought if any of those three was going to vote for it, it would be Thomas Massey. But here we are. Uh, we don't really know. And if they all three were to vote no, uh, we cannot find any record of a Democrat or in this case, let's just say a member of the minority, the Democrats right now, who's ever voted in committee to get a rule out of the committee. Um, that's pretty extraordinary. Now, again, this is a bipartisan deal. It's been blessed by the president of the United States with the way on Jim McGovern, who's the chair. I'm sorry, former chair, but now the ranking Democrat on the rules committee to say, look, you have to take one from the team. Uh, you could also see a scenario where maybe people who are opposed just take a walk. I've seen people who are opposed to a rule. Mysteriously, then they're absent, and you have the votes in committee, and you move on, Brian. So we don't know yet. Right. Uh, Chip Roy said things like, you know, Kevin's a friend, but this is a turd sandwich, right? Congressman yeah. Norman, we didn't get anything we wanted. Well, that's not true. It's not, you can't say you didn't get anything you wanted. And you point out in your column today on FoxNews.com, what might have been yesterday, uh, you said McCarthy name-checked Massey Sunday as he touted a provision to hold the line on appropriations bills pushed by Massey as an item in the legislation. In other words, if Massey scored the, his ideas in the legislation, how could he oppose it? Is that Do you, fulfill, you feel as though he does yeah. have a reason to vote for it? it, it well, that, that's what Kevin McCarthy thinks, at least. Uh, you know, Thomas Massey, sometimes he kind of in recent years has toggled between being an ally of the leadership and somebody who's a thorn in the side. Um, you know, the general premise up here on Capitol Hill is if you get your provision in the bill, then you should vote for it, whatever the bill is. I, I saw along several years ago when the Republicans were in the majority and they were trying to put a provision in about uh, dredging uh, the harbor in Charleston, South Carolina. And they got their provision in. And then people from South Carolina said, we're not going to vote for, for the overall bill. Too much spending. And they said, well, we're going to take your provision out. So, yeah. You know, that's kind of how this works. Oh, I got my thing in, but I'm going to I'm going to complain and moan about the rest of the bill and vote against. It. Uh, you know, that's not fair, fair pool up here. Understood. So what's the schedule? 
Well, the schedule is that the Rules Committee comes in at 3 today. I think that that is going to be a good old good one, as we say back on the farm in Ohio, where I'm from, uh, because we don't know how that's going to go or how long it's going to take. I would anticipate them maybe not, if, if things go swimmingly, at least being late into the evening, if not early tomorrow morning before they get the rule out. Now, the bill was posted around 7.15 on uh, uh, Sunday, which means that they could vote, if you adhere to the 72-hour rule that Kevin McCarthy has talked about here, uh, 72 hours later would be Wednesday evening. Uh, the question is, do they go to the floor if they don't think they have the votes, or do they hold back and wait until they make sure both sides have the votes and then put it on the floor? I expect tomorrow will probably be a late night in the House of Representatives, even in the best of circumstances, because we don't know when they would actually you know, bring up the bill. Uh, the, the problem for this, Brian, is that the Republicans, uh, you know, that they are you know, really being challenged to figure out how many votes they have for it. Uh, they were thinking over the weekend they might get 180 out of their you know, 223, and that's not going to be necessarily the case. Uh, so now that number might be lower uh, than that, you know, in the 150s, um, the Democrats, can you get 70 plus Democrats to vote yes for this? You know, it's always the little things. You have David Cicilline, who is a Democrat of uh, Rhode Island, um, who he is retiring, resigning from the House uh, as of June 1st. So does he does he vote for this? So is he part of the calculus or does yeah. it, uh, if this leads into Thursday? You see what I'm talking? There's all these little permutations. We don't know. That's yeah. And then probably this weekend for the Senate. Frankly. Also, permitting is pretty big, too, right? These pipelines permitting and, of course, the windmills to, uh, as well. Student loan repayments start in a few months and then the rest is going to work its way through the courts. There's some workfare when it comes to SNAP. Uh, a lot of you know, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is a lot of what they wanted, considering, Chad, you remember what President Biden said for for six months. I'm not negotiating at all. Yeah. And he said he was not going to negotiate on lifting the debt ceiling. Um, you know, but here they are negotiating on other things and appropriations. And this is where some Democrats are saying, wait a minute, why should we vote for this, Mr. President? Uh, we, you know, you, you, the work uh, requirements and things for food assistance, uh, that's something we're not for, the permitting, the environmental provisions. Granted, that doesn't go nearly as deep. And to call it, you know, overall permitting with, say, oil and gas drilling and things, there's not as much there. But for some, some general things to build roads, as Kevin McCarthy said the other day, it really accelerates the process there. But but some of the overall permitting doesn't go as deep as some uh, uh, Republicans who wanted, even some mod- moderate Democrats. I mean, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, gets the provision he wants for the Mountain Valley Pipeline, uh, which is something important to him and, and in uh, you know Western Virginia as well. But, uh, you know, the general permitting across the board, it's not as good as some would like. It's so hard. Uh, I don't care who the speaker is at any time, Democrat or Republican. You can't possibly please these people who are elected from people in a very diverse country like ours, even if they're the most agreeable. Maybe the people that put you in office don't want you to sign this. So at what point do you say, I got to do what's best for the country if you indeed uh, conclude that? The thing that bothers Lindsey Graham is defense. It's not keeping up with inflation. Listen to him. Uh, Cut 33. I am not going to do a deal that marginally reduces the number of IRS agents in the future at the expense of sinking the Navy. The Biden defense budget takes the Navy from 298 to 291 ships. The Navy suggests that we need 373 ships to deal with the threats we face as a nation. How do you get to 373 ships if you're spending below inflation? And that's where his rubber hits the road. Everybody's got their thing. 
But what is the reality on defense? Why would, or would, would I mean, why would they agree to anything below inflation with all these challenges? Well, because they're actually spending more on defense overall, and the Democratic ask was to spend less. You know, when you get into what we call the discretionary uh, spending budget each year, Brian, on Capitol Hill, that's the part that Congress spends each year, not entitlements. This is the part that they have to appropriate each year, 12 spending bills. Of that, the biggest, by far, a country mile, 52, 53 percent is defense. And it always goes up. So it's going to go up. But again, this is the negotiation. Democrats wanted to cut. Uh, you know, I'll go back to Jim McGovern. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, yeah. the Democrats from Massachusetts, he, 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 said, he said it was ridiculous. He said, why do we always you know, spend more on the military every single year? He said, he said that. why does that automatically go up? And again, if you want to get to real cuts, you're talking about dealing with, after you've gotten defense off the table, entitlements off the table, gotcha. you are dealing with 15% of the total spending. Chad, you're the best. Thanks for making this uh, digestible and understandable. Thank you. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show uh, on the road. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we're back. I know a lot of people uh, took the extra day. A lot of people just really enjoyed those few days uh, when they had a chance to hang out with their families, and I think that's great. I also think that knowing my audience and you guys, you took some time to understand what this whole uh, this whole thing's about, uh, and that is Memorial Day, and you see all the people. Uh, that lost their lives for this country. It's just uh, unbelievable uh, how many people have done that. And thankfully, I was at an event in Florida, northern Florida, at Jacksonville Jaguar Stadium, and they had the biggest outside Washington wall of remembrance in the country. And in the wall, the first time that anyone could remember, they didn't add any names this year. But it still didn't. When they asked the Gold Star families to stand up, they still had maybe 70. 70 people. So that obviously doesn't end. 20 years of war doesn't stop. Uh, Adam Bowler knows all that. Uh, Adam Bowler joins us now. Appreciate it. Adam, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Well, I'll tell you what. You're always involved, weighing in on conflicts, and we know that you were in on the negotiation with the Taliban and leading to our eventual exit from that country. And now we're in a situation, and I'm going to get to the main story, and that's Ukraine. I saw over the weekend the Taliban attacked Iran. Now, I knew they didn't get along prior to 9-11. But it, how bad is it between these countries? Do you know? <laughs> it is interesting when one terrorism group attacks the other. A bad guy attacks another one from our perspective. I do think, look, at the end of the day, Taliban, now that they're controlling the country, is sensitive to anyone else in the country. And that sometimes extends to ISIL and it sometimes extends to Iran because Iran is trying to exploit weakness uh, in Afghanistan to try to take it over uh, or try to push it around like it does a lot of places. Uh, and they don't want to become the next Syria. So that's why you see the Taliban actually uniting in, in a way. Sometimes uh, you, know, you, you share common enemies, which is a bit odd. Right. Uh, Adam Bowler, the CEO of Rubicon Founders, senior uh, Trump official in his day, was on the Abraham Accords negotiating team. So uh, we're, we know every hot spot in the country, and it, almost, it seems like everything is getting worse. Does it surprise you that China rejected our latest attempt to talk to them? 
uh, Secretary of Defense Austin was going to, was offering to meet them in Singapore, and they said no. I mean, doesn't this make us look pathetic? We keep asking to talk. I think it's it looks bad. Uh, it's bad politics for us. I mean, keep in mind the foreign minister met with Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan uh, and doesn't want they don't want to meet uh, Austin. Um, I think that's to uh, make a statement. I think it's to make a statement that we blew up some balloons, which is crazy. We should have blown them up earlier. Um, and from my perspective on this, we should keep playing our game, let them make whatever statement they want. Um, uh, but I, 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 yes, I think it's uh, something that flies in our face. Uh, I do obviously think we did the right thing in stopping that balloon. I think we should have stopped it earlier. We should stop them everywhere. And that includes, yeah. I love expanding this, the base in Guam. I love reestablishing our relations in ports, uh, um, military ports in Philippines. I think the Japanese get the threat. South Korea and Japan are speaking basically because they have the common enemy theory. Australia seems to understand they're going to be challenged in the area. So finish the job. Get Taiwan the weapons they need to defend themselves like the Ukrainians are. And have we done that? We know the holdup is production, supply supply chain. Well, it's been years now. Adam, do you, I know you've been out for a year and a half, but do you have any sense when Taiwan's going to get the weapons they paid for from us? I think we're in great danger. And let me, let me take it to Ukraine, Russia, and then let's take it to Taiwan, which is – and I was on this show what, a month or two ago making the point that we can't act in half measures. We can't act in half measures and be afraid – about how the United States comes off in different areas when we know it's the right thing. And so on the Ukraine side, right, we say, oh, are we going to give them Abrams tanks? Well, let's hem and haw a lot um, and then give them. We did the same thing on F-16s. And when we were talking, it was we're definitely not going to give them F-16s. The point here is you've got to make a call because the reality is how many people have died and how much time has been lost deliberating. Uh, and not making decisions. So let's take that over to Taiwan. There are a number of things that are going to make a huge difference, China, Taiwan. Uh, number one is we've got to prepare. Uh, we have the time. And it's funny, we have the time on Russia. In fact, one thing I'll, I will compliment the administration in declassifying intelligence, in knowing it was there. But just because you know doesn't mean you can act like a reporter. It's not the New York Times, right? Uh, it's to take action. And so now we need to put all of these things in place from a military perspective, and I'm worried it's not happening quick enough. And then the second thing here is you've got to economically buffer everyone around in a really strong way and unite the region. And you have a region that we unite for you. So you're talking about Mekong countries, Indonesia. You've got our friends in Japan, in Korea. So uniting that region across also is really, really important so it's not just a Taiwan-only fight. So we're talking to Adam Bowler, who's been on the negotiating team, foreign policy with the Trump guys. Uh, and we're just looking at uh, what's going on right now. Let's switch over to Ukraine. They know uh, the Russians personally sanctioned you, so I don't think that's really going to hurt you. But they see you as a threat because you're speaking out, just like the Wall Street Journal reporter does a great story about the economic drain on Russia since their invasion of Ukraine. Then he gets jailed on spying. They're going to try to rattle you and Lindsey Graham. But, Adam, I don't see that happening. Yesterday, we're trying to confirm reports that Moscow, a rich neighborhood in Moscow, was targeted in a series of drone strikes. What does that tell you about this conflict? I, I have two feelings about that drone strike, and I want to see how it plays out. There is an element, there's an optimistic side of me, 
that says that shows that you have anti-Russian forces operating from within Russia, and it shows how people feel, uh, and that's a resistance effort. There is a negative or pessimistic side, because I know that Putin is relatively talented. That is, that could be Russians doing that under Putin's watch as an excuse to hit back at Zelensky uh, even more or to take more personal action. So I'm watching that. Uh, I'm nervous to call it one thing or the other, because the one thing I will say is the attacks aren't uh, – I don't know how uh, – they haven't been overly effective. They look uh, – they're good for media, but they haven't been overly effective. And so it makes me worry that they could be used as a pretext, and it's actually something Putin wants. Understood. Here is what Michael Waltz told me this morning. Sounds similar to you. He's not willing to buy that this was a Ukrainian attack. Look, this could be a covert Ukrainian action hitting back, but it also could be a false flag from Putin uh, that wants to galvanize the Russian people uh, and wants to get them you know, back, in, back into this fight because Putin's obviously losing. Russians have had 14 drone attacks on Kyiv in May alone, a bunch last night. They're getting a lot of these drones knocked out of the sky. Uh, the missile defense is getting better. In fact, I think over the weekend, 52 of 54 Iranian-made uh, drones were knocked out by, uh, by the Ukrainians in Kyiv. So that gives you an update. There's a fear, and there's, we know it's going to happen. It's time for a counteroffensive, and the, the Ukrainians seem ready to go. This is going to be all – I mean, this is the most important thing that's going to help have now is the counteroffensive. And they've been waiting for us to build up. They've been waiting for allies to build up. It's time to supply them and have them take as much as they can. I think it's super important, uh, this summer counteroffensive, which started as a spring. Um, I believe some of the reason there's delay is they're waiting, they're building up. But I think it's hugely important for us to take the ground. And the alternative, I mean, let's be clear, as we talked about on this show before, everything is connected. So you started out with the Taliban. And by the way, you started out thinking about Memorial Day weekend, and it was hard in Memorial Day weekend not to think of our men and women that lost their lives unnecessarily uh, as everyone was running away through that in Afghanistan and how that went. That you know, it was hard not to remind us of Vietnam. Uh, and so now we see that emboldened. Uh, and it's probably one of the reasons we're in conflict here. And if we don't have a very strong counteroffensive, it will, guess who emboldens then? Uh, you know, she is watching. Um, and that will eventually lead over to Taiwan if we don't show strength. Uh, uh, no question. I want you to hear what the Russian uh, Dmitry Peskov said. It is totally clear that we're talking about a response of the Kyiv regime to our very effective strikes on one of the decision-making centers. Such a strike took place on Sunday. It would make them look weak to be that vulnerable, uh, unless, of course, they wanted the Russian people to rally. But the Russians don't, the rich people don't fight in Russia. That's the big story. The draft is ineffective. They're, they're, they're coercing prisoners. And now uh, they're, making, they're stopping people from leaving the country. And this seems like they're falling apart. I've got to bring you one other area. This whole private army push. We know about the Wagner Group. What's that about? And how little regard they have for regular Russia. Now we have Gazprom, the gas company, has their own private security company, and they're trying to recruit off the Russian army and do their own thing? What's going on there? It's funny because the Wagner thing is very odd, right? It's very odd. The dialogue goes back and forth. 
Uh, again, usually when things are odd, uh, and, and really for our listeners, what I'm referring to is that Wagner uh, going back and forth between Putin's military and kind of the comments that are made, uh, those are odd things. Um, and again, it, because that's there, it either experiences significant discord or disorganization, or if you want to give more credit, uh, that that's okay from Putin and he wants that to happen for whatever reason. Uh, so it's very interesting. But I do think it's much more likely, given a number of odd things here, uh, that there is a there is a possibility, a strong one, that if um, that we have the ability to run through a little bit here. I think Putin doesn't need the Saudi Putin needs Saudi support now. His change or his fight back and forth is definitely economic uh, because they need the money. So it's a question then how much he wants to upset MBS uh, and the oil cartel versus how much money he actually needs. So I take that third one as a sign that. Economically, some of these sanctions are making a difference. So that tells me push down hard on those. Push down hard on the Ukrainian counteroffensive and push him back and do it now. Absolutely. It's in America's interest. I wouldn't have said yeah. what Lindsey Graham said and said every dead Russian is good for America. That's, I'm, I want to hear him qualify that. It doesn't sound like him. But now because of that, the Russians have sanctioned him and want him arrested. Good luck with that. Here's what he said what Ukraine needs. To his great credit, he goes over and speaks to the, play, to the, uh, to the guys making the, the decision makers. And he also went to Saudi Arabians trying to keep them out of the Russian camp. Here's Lindsey Graham. You, I want to end the war in Ukraine by defeating Putin. The counteroffensive is afoot right now. Uh, in the last 400 and something days, the Ukrainians have defied every expectation. They've weakened and bloodied the Russian army inside of Ukraine. They need longer-range longer rockets called ATACMs, and they need cluster munitions uh, to defeat the Russians. I think they can expel Russia from Ukraine. Uh, I, I think it's if we get these reports are semi-correct, and the Russians are inept and took, what, eight months to take Bakhmut, and now they don't even want to keep it? So I'm thinking this could be an unbelievable summer for the Ukrainians because they can fight. They have tactics. They study. They do have – we're getting a great intelligence, and the Russians have no organization, terrible leaders. They're running out of equipment and ammo, and there's the infighting. It's got to be an embarrassment to that country's uh, history. I think what it tells you, if we had not used half measures before – Right away today, we would be in a different place. Absolutely. But let's forget the past, right? Let's forget the past. To your point, let's forget the past. Uh, let's not take half measures anymore. And let's finish this thing. Yeah. Uh, remember, uh, when the invasion first happened, we gave them blankets and MREs. Uh, and if we had just fortified them with the high Mars, if we had given them what they needed right away, uh, they, they have proven to be better fighters than everybody uh, put together. And lastly, does it concern you with this debt ceiling? A lot of people who are strong on defense, like Waltz and Lindsey Graham, are upset their defense money is not increasing. Do you think it, we're going to really feel that? Uh, I think that I am not sure that's where the debt ceiling talks will end. Uh, it's a little early. They made an agreement. I think that leaves some room for some changes. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few changes before that's said and done in the next day or two. Gotcha. Adam Bull, I think there could be some changes. Yeah, I mean, that's just, I just can't. I, if I'm president, I don't care what party I'm in. Why would I want yeah. my defense weaker? And on what yeah, planet I think you are leave you? A little, uh, 
you've got to leave a little room here uh, on this because it's not like they just do it. And so I think over the next day or two, you'll see a little room snap up, and that's where you'll see it snap up. I All think right. you'll see some of that military spending. Always negotiating, Adam. Good job. Adam Bowler, <laughs> CEO of Rubicon and Founders and was senior Trump guy. Uh, Adam, would you go back if Trump needed you and he wins? Oh, there are certain positions that if someone asks you to, you don't have a choice. But it's not my plan, so uh, just to be clear. I, although everyone, I guess, has to say that. But I like doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> All right. Go get him, Adam. Thank you. Uh, you got it. one 408 7669 I like doing what I'm doing, too. And I'll do more of it when we come back with you. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Comer subpoenaed the document that he requested. We have jurisdiction over the FBI, which they seem to act like we do not. I personally called Director Ray and told him he needs to send that document. Today is the deadline. So let me not just tell you. Let me tell Director Christopher Ray right here, right now. If he misses the deadline today, I am prepared to move contempt charges in Congress against him. We have jurisdiction over this. He can send us that document. We have the right to look at that. Republicans and Democrats alike in that committee. And if he does not follow through with the law, we will move contempt charges against Christopher Ray. And why? Because a whistleblower came forward and said, I gave my testimony to the FBI about my view of a bribery scheme that Joe Biden directly benefited from when he was vice president. And they said, let me read it. They said, well, when you take a 302, I think it's 302, uh, that's unverified. We're just taking down and, and just typing it out of what this person's saying. We don't want to put it out there as if it's true. Say, hey, and the Republicans go, yeah, we get it. We know what that means. We want to see what he said and what he recorded. We want to see what he put on the record. He sat down with the FBI. He swore an oath. And he said, this is what I know happened. So share it. When they didn't share it, these guys walked over to, to Comer and said, listen, I just told the FBI they don't seem interested. Let me see. Does that sound familiar? Just like John Paul Isaac? I found this laptop. It's Hunter Biden's. He won't come back. I called him nine times. He won't pick it up. I opened it up, and it's pretty concerning about the security of our country because there's international business deal and horrible pictures out there that could lead to extortion. Alex, listening on WWABC. Hey, Alex. Yeah, and, you know, Brian, thanks for taking the call. The FBI, after the Durham report came out, they said, hey, we're not corrupt anymore. Well, if you're not corrupt, then the <laughs> FBI should start following the law and turn it over. Yeah. But uh, you, that kid that wanted the pancakes in the restaurant got the pancakes, right? The woman that told you she wants Ron DeSantis to stay in Florida as governor, I think she's going to get away because there's a very small chance that Ron DeSantis is going to become the nominee because of the factor that Trump is going to stay with his 35% MAGA base. The 65% are going to get split up by the other candidates. And I think the only way, the little chance that he has to become the nominee would be to do what the Democrats did in 2020, where they pushed Buttigieg out of the race because Joe Biden and Buttigieg were splitting up a similar base. And Alex, good points, really good points. The only problem is DeSantis is not Buttigieg. I don't think anyone's pushing him anywhere. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We've got a big hour coming your way, including Michael Goodwin standing by uh, with the New York Post. And we have a lot to discuss. We're talking about the debt ceiling debate. Is Kevin McCarthy's in the sales mode? We're also talking about the Moscow attack from it looks like Ukrainian forces or at least drones and the nonstop attack on Kiev. But I think a major offensive is coming. But first and foremost, the most intriguing, enjoyable part, I love 2024. On the Republican side, they got all the intrigue. A ton of talent. Asa Hutchinson, solid governor, but he's in the single digits. Tim Scott, I think, is going to be a factor. Governor Nikki Haley, who is Ambassador Nikki Haley, um, she's got international as well as domestic credentials. But people are mostly talking about it. And by the way, Chris Christie could be getting in uh, sometime this week. A super PAC's already been formed around him. And uh, he's an excellent politician. He feels he could run uh, strongly on his record. Well, we'll see how that goes. We know he's going to be fearless and he'll know the issues. You watch him on ABC, you could see that. But it's all about, so far, one and two, Trump and DeSantis. And they've been going at it. That was the subject of Michael Goodwin's latest column in the New York Post. Michael, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. So you point out a few things. You point out the spread between the candidates uh, when, when you look at what's happening uh, overall in New Hampshire, uh, a big lead for Trump. New South Carolina, a big lead for Trump. Double digits in Iowa. Overall, double lead, double digits. But yet, Trump is dealing with DeSantis. Has already shown he's more formidable than anybody he's faced so far. Don't you think? I do. Uh, I, I think Ron DeSantis is uh, a. He's better funded. I mean, he's already got a super PAC that's. Uh, Got, got a ton of money in it. Um, he's he's also well prepared. I think he's been dealing with a lot of these uh, issues. Say compared, say to Chris Christie, for example, whom you mentioned. You know, Christie's been out of office, uh, and and the country's changed a lot in the last four or five years. It's the political landscape, and so I think that DeSantis is sort of very currently oriented, uh, and I think he's very skillful. Uh, he's look. He's he's winning a landslide election in Florida for a Republican. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that you know Obama was winning Florida, so he really made this state uh, a red state. And the things he was able to do there, I think, are very valuable and instructive. Some of them may not play well on the national stage uh, if she if he gets into a general election. But look, I, I, I think there's a good chance that he could give Donald Trump a real a real run for the nomination. Well, I think the number one you talked about maybe flipping the script when he when Trump came at him, he says, well, he's going at me more uh, from the left. Here's Trump at Ron DeSantis on Truth Social. Cut one. When the Ron DeSanctimonious facts come out, you will see that he's better than most Democrat governors, but very average at best compared to Republican governors. I don't think anyone believes that. More on Disney. Cut two. Look at Disney and what a mess it is. Could have worked out an easy settlement, but no, he wanted to show the fake news how tough a guy he is. He's not. So he's taken on Disney uh, on some of the issues that Republicans like. And when it comes to the other issue of being a governor, average governor, nobody think he's an above average governor by any calculus. Look, I think uh, Trump is going to have to find another way to deal with DeSantis. You know, the broad brush, trust me, I'm the only good person in the room, I think is not going to work. Look, one of the key questions, Brian, in this race is, 
what is the core support of Trump? How big is it? Um, is it the 50 percent that he's gotten in a bunch of polls lately, or is it closer to the 25 percent of the Republican Party that uh, many people believe, including some in the DeSantis camp? So that difference if it's 50%, nobody can beat him in the primary. If he roughly has 50% everywhere, uh, forget about it. But if it's 25%, and if, if many of the others are gettable, meaning a DeSantis or if someone else emerges can peel them away from Trump, then I think there's a real contest. Uh, but, of course, there's, look, if, we should just say, too, there's always the issue of the general election. If Donald Trump loses the nomination, what will he do? Will he start? A, will he run as a third-party candidate? Will he stay home? Uh, w would he work with a DeSantis or somebody who beat him? I mean, that seems highly unlikely given what we know about Trump. So th there's a lot of drama to, to come. And uh, but I think f here at the starting gate, uh, you know, what six months before uh, Iowa. DeSantis is mounting a real challenge. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned, like, coming out of the gate. He went at Trump's record as president. It wasn't about, you know, wild and crazy guy. It wasn't about uh, some of the things Trump has done. It wasn't about the lawsuits yeah. Trump faces. It was about his record as president on the debt saying that, you know, we have $32 trillion in debt, and Donald, $8 trillion of that came under Donald Trump's leadership. Uh, he went after the First Step Act, which uh, everyone agrees now went too far in releasing uh, pr federal prisoners. Um, and, and there are other issues, of course, with Fauci, Dr. Fauci, and the way that the Trump sort of got dragged into into supporting shutdowns across the country. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what else uh, DeSantis goes after Trump on. But I think those were surprising, surprising open shots. I really thought that DeSantis would try to just shrug off Trump's insults. Instead, he came back at him, but not on the insults, on the record. And I think twist. Yeah, I do, too. Uh, from all the single-digit people, from Vivek Ramaswamy on down, I think Tim, Tim Scott and Governor Nikki Haley, I think they have a lane, especially if these two are beating up each other. Do you? Hard to see. I mean, look, uh, it, again, if you just look at the early polling, um, you've got Trump, let's say, round, round numbers 50 percent, DeSantis round numbers 20 percent. Uh, that leaves, you know, roughly 30 percent for everybody else to split up. And there seems to be no real clear leader among the rest who, who could be kind of a third-place candidate who could be a spoiler one way or the other. Uh, I think one will probably emerge. Uh, they're, all, they're all qualified, they're, they're, they're na except for Vivek. The rest are, are well-known national commodities, in a sense. And so whether it's Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, um, you know, they're all worthy of consideration. And we'll have to see if, I mean, in a way, Brian, one way to look at it is DeSantis is fighting all of those to, be, to make it a two-person race. 
one of those is fighting to make it a three-person race uh, temporarily, at least. And so I think we're going to see a lot of uh, permutations as people make a run and then mm-hmm. fade, and then someone else makes a run and fades. I mean, that's the course when you have these multiple candidate fields. I mean, remember, not so it seems not so long ago, Kamala Harris was going to be the Democrats nominee, and then it was going to be Elizabeth Warren, and one by one, then it was Pete Buttigieg. They all made a run and then fell back, and I think that's what we'll have to watch for her with the Republicans this time. Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to see this play out because you're actually on the field answering questions. I actually believe that DeSantis does well in contentious situations because he goes so deep on policy, and you know he'll give a speech, no problem. He doesn't need notes. Okay, he gets it. I, I think you know. The dynamic Bill Clinton, the folksiness of George W. Bush, and people made fun of it, but he was conversational, and uh, the Barack Obama uh, and Ronald Reagan, those people that could just speak off the cuff, I think that he's like that. I don't necessarily think he's got that inner charisma, but he's got a lot of right. poise. So we'll see what happens. The one thing is I like guys that are smarter than me. And I, I look at Harvard, Yale, and, and I see how well he dives into policy, knows history. All you have to do is read his books, even the first one. You look at when no one, he said nobody bought it. Uh, but he wrote it anyway, and then he sent it to his coach. You know, So uh, I, I just like a guy that, that loves the policy stuff, even though it, it might not be the most electric thing you could hear on the stump. Lastly, on the debt deal, I want you to hear what Kimberly Strassel said of the deal so far. The Wall Street Journal would accept it. The New York Post would accept it. But a lot of conservative Republicans, Freedom Caucus guys, are saying no. Here's Kimberly Strassel of uh, WSJ 47. And in reality, this deal was done entirely, negotiated entirely on Republican terms. So you have Democrats that are essentially saying, well, look, here are the areas where we didn't have to sacrifice, um, glossing over all the areas where they did. So I think McCarthy gets credit for this. Is it everything all at once? No. But is it going to be better than what they had yesterday? You bet. So, I mean, what about that? I mean, the, the era of compromise, or do you look at this and say, well, now they should have gotten more? Look, uh, by any compromise standard, Brian, uh, somebody will always say you should have gotten more. I mean, haven't you done that yourself? Like Ever, you, absolutely. You, you know, you ask, you ask for a raise, and you're going to say, shh. I should have asked for more, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, so I think that's human nature in a way, and it's impossible to know. I mean, I think that there are merits in this. There are things that you wish were in it, uh, but it is for now. It is, you know, the Republicans have one branch of government, not even the whole branch. Uh, they have half of Congress, and they did, they got compromise, and I think that the one thing I would say that was so smart that they did was the vote to raise the debt limit while also making demands. I think that bill changed the dynamic, and it, it stopped the Democrats from being able to say the Republicans were risking default. It, it put the onus on the Democrats. The Republicans raised the debt limit, but they wanted some clawbacks. And it seems to me that was a change because always it's like it's always blamed. The media always blames the Republicans. Remember when Joe Biden said, I'm not going to negotiate? 
Well, that didn't happen, right? So I, I think you have to say in many ways it was a win for Kevin McCarthy. It was a win for Republicans to get these concessions, to change the dynamic of more spending, and to hold spending in check more or less for the next two years. That's something uh, – look, they could have done that anyway as in a house if they could have stopped new, new spending. Nonetheless, they got the Democrats to agree to it. So I think on, on, that, on that basis, it, right. is, it, it is a significant development. I would think so. A couple of things, too. They said they wouldn't negotiate at all. I want a clean right. bill. I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to negotiate. And what's crazy is you talk about tactics. This is what worries me. There are people you disagree with, and then there's incompetence. For Joe Biden to go to the G7 with this hanging over his head, making it the predominant number of questions behind closed doors and in front of the press, all about the debt ceiling, all about the debt ceiling. It's embarrassing. And then he can't talk about China. And China can say, look at these Americans. They can't even do government. And they want us to take their government. They're critical of us. And number two, leaves early. It goes, okay, I don't the G7. I'll go home. No, you're supposed to go to Australia. And you're supposed to go to Papua New Guinea. All right? What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. Because it's sending a message that we're surrounding China. We're, we're, we're collecting our allies. We're, we want them to know that we support them. Invasion matters. Taiwan matters. Our military presence matters. Instead, he goes home and doesn't negotiate and goes to Camp David during the weekend. So why did you not finish your trip and zoom in? Yeah, there, there's, there's so many things. I mean, I, if I were... Uh, a Democratic member of Congress, I would be furious with the Biden administration over the way this was handled. I mean, Janet Yellen just made everything worse. I mean, her, her final thing, we'll give you five more days, was done clearly to accommodate Biden's vacation. That's it. That's it. From June 1st to June 5th, it was all about Biden's scheduling, and he didn't want to be in Washington. Uh, Look, she was, I think, a disaster in terms of the messaging. I think, you know, his idea, I'll never negotiate, uh, that was stupid. Uh, and, and in the end, you can see, I mean, it, it's a good, Brian, I think a good moment, a good view of what this administration is about. It's a very slow-moving, yeah. reactionary, so we're always half on vacation, either on vacation or coming back from vacation. I mean, just not a vigorous leadership from the White House or from the agencies. I mean, when you see the Treasury Secretary be embarrassed this way, uh, it's not good for the administration. It's, I mean, the Democrats have a real problem on their hands come 2024. It just, it's still, we were just talking about the Republicans. But it boggles the mind to think Joe Biden is going to be the nominee in 2024 and for a man who would be 86 if he were to finish that term. It just it doesn't make sense. And, you know, um, it's hard to believe that something that this this wacky now will actually happen later. Uh, Michael Goodwin, always great to talk to you. It's an exciting time. Talk to you again. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 408 I'll come back with your calls in just a moment. Listen, right now, RFK is closer to Joe Biden than DeSantis is to Donald Trump. Who would have thought of that? Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade.
If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, I think a lot of people are getting in with a lot of different ideas, but the one thing I do know America loves is they love those Trump policies that made America stronger, and we yearn for that back in this house and back in this country. So I think having debates is healthy, but at the end of the day, we know for foremost that what Biden has done to us, getting us out of Afghanistan, collapsing that, harming us around the world, 13 new gold star families, brought us inflation by Democrats in charge, opened a border where we can't control, fentanyl's now killing more Americans at any time in history. We need a new president with a new direction. You can have the debates, but at the end of the day, we need one person that's going to help lead us to the, the change. And that is Kevin McCarthy on with us today on Fox and Friends right before I started the radio show. Just saying, you know, he's not going to pick a candidate. It's not up to a speaker to do it, even if, if it's obvious he wants Trump. And I'm, I'm, I don't know. I assume it's him and Trump talk all the time. He, he called Trump prior to even announcing they had this deal done. He's been relatively quiet since it came uh, since it became public. Uh, but he's saying that I want the policies back, which says who's ever not following the policies, you're probably out of the mainstream. I was talking to someone very close to the former president. He said that it's pretty much 85 percent of the Republican Party is pro make America great again. That whole idea. So if you are maybe a traditional conservative, a Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney, uh, George W. Bush conservative, you're pretty much out of step with the party, which makes a lot of people back off, back out. The other big story is what the FBI is doing. William Lewis on WTRC joins us now. Hey, William. Thanks for taking my call. Hope you had an enjoyable weekend. Yep. What's on your mind? You know what? I I get into this, and it's you and I have spoken several times before, and and quite often I've brought up about these the the people, the representatives that are in charge, and it's it's like doesn't matter. It's a two story, uh, two rules uh, initiative. There's rules for them, rules for us, and and right now it, it pretty much is very very clear. I mean, it's black and white that. How much corruption has taken place with the Biden family? Well, we're about to find out. I really think we're getting closer to it. Those people who are dismissing Comer's investigations is because you don't want to watch. Look at what he has to say. Read what he puts out. You can't tell me he's not making progress. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. How about the fact that he had the third most deaths of any state having to do with the China virus or COVID? Even Cuomo did better. He was number four. He shut down everything, including the beaches. So I have trouble. I have trouble with these fights. You're taking your two strong candidates going after each other's strengths inaccurately and then going after Trump on spending maybe a little bit, but that was COVID pandemic stuff. And the other stuff was Congress. So I'm having trouble seeing these two attack each other on, in invalid ways. Maybe it's just me. Joining me now is Cash Patel, key player in the Trump world, uh, national security expert. Cash, welcome back. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for having me on the show. Okay, uh, Cash, I mean, obviously, I think Trump has got the big, uh, the best team he's ever had. Uh, from 2016 to 2020 and 2024. But Ron DeSantis might be his most most well-rounded opponent. Don't you agree? 
I think, look, I think there's two distinctions, and obviously, of course, I'm all in for President Trump being a senior advisor and formally serving with him. So, you know, I, I give your audience that bias up front. I think President Trump has performed on the national and international levels, and Ron has done a great job in the state of Florida. There's, I don't think anyone's really questioning much of his um, uh, governorship, um, but they are questioning his ability. But to your question, um, is he the most formidable? I mean, yeah, last time we took on Joe Biden, so I think – um, he's one of the better, better rounded candidates uh, going going against President Trump now. Um, your th- your thoughts about Cuomo, uh, Donald Trump saying this? Cut three. Look at Disney and what a mess it is. Could have worked out an easy settlement, but no, he wanted to show the fake news how tough a guy he is. He's not. I mean, is is playing this type of things? Is that the best way to go at it? Listen, the one thing I've learned about um, campaigning, and uh, which is not my universe, but being around Donald Trump's orbit, is he seems to have a knack of how to go after folks and when. And usually when we think he's doing it the wrong way, it turns out he's doing it the right way. I mean, if whether or not you agree with the tactic, um, I think everyone would, would agree by now that the polling should be closer than it is. And President Trump was taking a lot of flack early on for – going after DeSantis. So I think you know, him making these distinctions has paid off, and I think he's going to continue on that track. And whether or not you agree with how one governor handled COVID or not was better than the other, I think there have to be some distinctions drawn because Ron has now decided to uh, – Governor DeSantis now decided to run for president. So he is the other – President Trump is a clear front runner, and Governor DeSantis is now the number two. Uh, we're looking at what's going on right now in Ukraine. We know DeSantis and and Trump are both not strong uh, are not strong proponents about what's going on over there. Are you? Um, look, from a national security defense standpoint, do I want to spend 115 billion dollars? Um, possibly getting us into World War III? Absolutely not. That was one of the trade hallmarks of President Trump's uh, national security policy. I have 55,000 homeless veterans here that I'd rather see some money go to. I have We have a border that is completely open and pouring with Chinese fentanyl. So I'm not opposed to giving some aid to our allies overseas, especially if it stops World War III. But we are cutting blank checks. And my bigger problem is we don't have the capability to track down the money, literal cash that we're sending there. We find ourselves in the Afghan situation all over again, and it's as if our government hasn't learned. So I'm a stern critic of the way we're spending money over there. And now we're committing F-16s, according to President Biden, uh, over Memorial Day weekend. We are on the precipice of committing conventional forces, uh, American conventional forces there, and that would be tragic. Well, let me ask them, uh, with all the stuff, the Marines gave up their tanks. The F-16s uh-huh. are something we're looking to transition out of. When you look at some of the things that we supposedly have available, how much we left behind in Afghanistan, chose to leave behind, in, literally chose to leave behind uh-huh. in Iraq, how much they could be helping Ukraine right now without really hurting us. Does it astound you there's not more uh, more of an accountability of what we have and what we can send? Well, it, it, it does. And look, as a former chief of staff of DOD, um, it both astounds me, shocks me, and upsets me at the same time. The fact that we haven't learned and the fact that, unfortunately, the most powerful cult in Washington, D.C. is not the lobbyist industry, the defense industrial complex. I learned that from my time in the national security arena. And war, unfortunately, is good for them. They build, they get contracts, they get paid. 
and it all trickles down from them. And so building machinery, building equipment, building SAMs, building tanks, building F-16s, and then arming and equipping and training people also costs money. And all of that can only happen if we send and ship these things overseas and don't replace them. The tragic national security consequences, American national security is jeopardized at home and with our real allies overseas in places where we need to be on top of our game, like Iran and um, other areas in the Middle East. So that's the consequence of downflow, but the defense industrial complex, unfortunately, runs Washington, D.C., and you see it in politicians, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, when they want to go out there and just fund the Ukraine war effort. But don't you also feel as though if Russia is not our number one enemy, they're certainly our number two enemy, and they're being exposed, they're being drained for being bullies and belligerent. You see their role they did in Syria. You see what they've already just chose to take Crimea, parts of Georgia, and this wouldn't have stopped unless we back Ukraine to stop them. Can you see down the road if we just ignored this? Yeah, I, I agree. Ignoring it wasn't the wasn't the best uh, wouldn't be have been the best national security move. But I'm not saying we do a, just a full Heisman and a hundred percent turn about face. There are other ways. The reason that Russia invaded is the same reason that CCP and Xi Jinping are posturing around the South China Sea. There is no longer a Western alliance diplomatic effort that would have halted such a harsh. Um, war effort initiation plan. And Putin is out there doing it because he knows that the United States of America, um, under Joe Biden's leadership, is not a threat to him. He also can sustain and receive financial aid from directly from the CCP, and he's out there building alliances with people who used to be at war with each other, like Saudi Arabia and Iran, who are now replacing the petrodollar with the petro yuan. So they are taking on not just a nationalistic wartime effort, but a diplomatic, large-scale global effort to financially replace the United States. And that's a combination of failures in America. I agree war is the last resort and should never, ever um, uh, get dragged into it. But they are running a multi-front effort, and we are, unfortunately, under the Biden administration, sitting here sort of responding and looking for public headlines. We understand with China, too, they've rejected our, our overtures to go to meet with their counterpart to Secretary of Defense Austin. They said, no, thanks. We don't want to do that. Doesn't, mm. what, do you, what message does that send around the world? It, it's, it's terrible. We used to be able to at least get the Chinese and the CCP specifically on the phone, and we used to be able to implement tariff structures like we did under the Trump regime. We used to be able to dis- expel the so-called CCP diplomats in America running spy operations, and we used to be able to come down harshly on CCP efforts to buy up farmland and agroland and just land across the United States of America. And now what the CCP has learned is they don't need to even call the United States of America. We're not on the call sheet. The SECDEF can't get a hold of his counterpart. The president and Xi Jinping don't even speak. And the chairman and joint chiefs of staff, well, you know that. Chairman Milley has already publicly said if America were to attack China in any capacity, he would call him and give them a heads up. So this is the tectonic shift when you have a national geographic landscape that does not put an America first policy out there. And you're seeing it not just diplomatically, but what we call from a kinetic operation standpoint as well. And the heads of the world um, have shifted structures from tier one to tier two to I don't even know where America is right now because we don't even make the call sheet. Cash Patel is former DOD chief of staff, former deputy assistant to President Trump. He's on with us now. So, Cash, uh, when you look at what the State Department's doing, I mean, no matter who the president is, you need other people to do their job. 
So what's mm-hmm. going on in Venezuela? I have no idea. What's going on in Ecuador? <laughs> I don't know. They're emptying their country to our border. Venezuela, Cuba, we, we have no idea what's happening. We watch Colombia basically flip to a socialist country and Brazil follow mm-hmm. close behind. Where are we on this? And this is not yep. stuff you necessarily, you know, we're not. A, there's people that have jobs, ambassadorships to inform our State Department that gets our the executive branch involved. Where is the dissemination of order and responsibility? No, look, I'm glad you're bringing this up because all somebody's talking about in the news. Everybody's focused on Russia and Ukraine and China and possibly the Middle East, but south of our border and down to South America, where we were focused when Maduro and, and, and things were, were popping up. Now we are talking about an expansion of the BRICS industry, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and they are going down there for the economic boom that we were talking about earlier. They're now going down there and, and getting the likes of Ecuador and possibly even Venezuela, which was just sponsored for BRICS entry by Brazil, I believe, if I have it correct. So we are ignoring, but diplomatically, and that should always be our first effort, is diplomatic strength. But diplomatic strength cannot exist unless you have the threat of a large-scale national force. And we don't have that anymore in America because Joe Biden and his national security apparatus have removed that from the world stage. And now the world is responding in South America saying, well, we don't need America anymore. We're going to go join another uh, coalition, and we are going to be more powerful than ever, and we don't have to worry about America's response. And that's what's and cash. Yeah. Right, because America said, yeah, if you do this, you leave our currency, there's going to be hell to pay, and here's how. Instead, they yeah. do it, and they're now dealing with it. And we have, we're still accepting meetings with, uh, with the president of Brazil, Lula, whose idol is Fidel Castro, and looked up to Stalin. So uh, what are we doing? But there's no price to pay for this. South Africa breaking our sanctions and providing weaponry mm-hmm. and important uh, electronic parts to Russia. Where's the hell to pay for that? Has pressure been put on India to stop taking over when Western companies lead inside Russia, knowing we can't alienate them because they are enemies of China? I mean, it doesn't seem like anyone is doing their job. You're right. Look, the simple string to pull would be the economic pressure string, whether it's in the form of tariffs or otherwise, or threat to pull government contracts, or what we did in the Trump administration would be literally pulled State Department funding, grants to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars that these countries rely on uh, to produce programs that are supposed to help the economic welfare of their citizenry. We're not pulling anything. It seems to be we're paying them even more money, and they're getting away with ripping us off. And this is the unfortunate precipice we've fallen off of because the Biden administration's national security policy has been, to sum it up, what did Trump do? We're going to do the opposite. Pick your country, pick your target. And now you see the precipitous fall that we have in places like South America and around the world. And look, like you bring up a great example. South Africa, dual-use technology, they're some of the biggest producers of semiconductors and tech in the world, and that stuff is used for you know pejorative purposes, warfare. And they're just shipping it around willy-nilly, and we have no say in that matter whatsoever. And South Africa used to be our one of our greatest allies on the African continent. Now it's no more. They call Russia and China instead. But we do have much more trade with South Africa. They, they have yeah. almost no trade with Russia until this war started. Exactly. And then now you're talking about trade deficits and trade tariffs. And that's a central policy or failure of the Biden administration, whether it's South Africa, India, Pakistan. To give you right. an example, they just gave a $500,000 grant for transgender operations in Pakistan. I mean, Ugh. you know, whatever your policy is on that belief, Ugh. I'd rather spend half a million dollars chasing down terrorists that are still there 
and operating and growing in Afghanistan. So that's just the failure, or that's the action. It's not even a failure. It's the action of the State Department right now under Tony Blinken and Biden. Those are their priorities. And that's the same thing we're hearing through Africa, the Sudan. That's the same thing we're hearing in Central America, and they get laughed out of the room. Nobody cares. Uh, Out of everything, there's a a punch list in this world, and that's not in the top ten. And this is a perilous time. So does this make you hunger to... Uh, to get back in a position of power to try to straighten some of this stuff out? Well, listen, I'll tell you, serving for 16 years is a privilege, and I've told President Trump in the world that if he goes back, I go back. And I think it's for the same reason that President Trump is so vociferously out there. He cares so much about this country and protecting it. Now you don't want to – you want to hand it off and say, okay, we did our turn like our founding fathers meant. No one's supposed to be there forever. Now it's your turn. You guys at least make national security an apolitical thing. So, yeah. I want to go back there and do the main wickets that President Trump told us to swing at, killing al-Qaeda, wiping out uh, ISIS senior leadership, protecting our border, taking on the CCP, Iran, and Russia, and and, and returning a balance to economic trade so the diplomatic effort um, has stability under a national security apparatus that has teeth again. And we're just missing on all fronts there. Uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Just do your job, and we'd be halfway there with the right objective, which is pro-America, not even yeah. Democrat or Republican, just before the country. Is that too much to ask? Uh, Cash, thanks <laughs> <No>. so much. <laughs> uh, I appreciate thanks, it. Brian. You okay. got it. Uh, meanwhile, 2024, DeSantis kicks off his great American comeback tour in Iowa. That's today, Wednesday. DeSantis continues through Iowa. Thursday, Trump does his, uh, is in Iowa before doing a town hall with Sean Hannity. Uh, and then uh, DeSantis will go to New Hampshire. Then he'll finish up in South Carolina. And then we'll see. And I have a pretty good source that says that Trump has no interest in debating. So it's up to DeSantis to make this a race to get him on the stage. Or somebody else. I'm not diminishing the others. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Back with your calls in just a moment. Thanks so much for being here. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. That's where the pride display used to be. I came in here two days ago, and my seven-year-old, who's non-binary, saw it and said, look, mom, it's pride. Look, they're going to celebrate me. I can't bring them here anymore, at least for the entire month of June, because if they walk in and all the other people who walk in and go, where'd it go? We could do so much better than this. We're not supposed to negotiate with terrorists. Terrorists, terrorists who don't think trans clothing should be sold in major department stores and that seven years old can't be gender fluid? Believe me, I think they should take that kid away from her. Seven-year-old gender fluid? Are you nuts? You should not be talking about gender politics or gender issues at, at for a seven-year-old. You should be going to gym, studying at home, hanging out with your friends, whoever they are. But at seven-year-old, you say your child's gender fluid, and that's okay? But this plays into a bigger story. Now, over the weekend, Sam Ponder, a noted sportscaster, great sideline reporter, I think uh, husband, I think husband was in the NFL for a while, I think he was playing quarterback, uh, came out and blasted the fact that women are playing, men, trans men are playing in women's sports. Right now, he came out and she gets blasted as a bigot. 
because, I don't know, in a column in USA Today, she was quoted as saying, uh, this is not should be happening. A lot of people, uh, uh, what's her name, Steele, came out, another sportscaster, and we know about Riley Gaines, came out and said, I'm not competing against a trans woman. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. They're not women. And whatever you want to do, you can live your life. You can't, you can't, be un, you can't uh, allow contests to be tilted. Fairness to go out the window because of a decision you make for whatever reason about your gender. Certain things have to give up. How about this? 66% of adults do not believe the biological male should be allowed to compete in women's sports. We're the majority of Americans. Why is everyone keeping their mouth shut? I mean, you've got to show a little bit of guts to come forward before another generation of women get totally screwed up when it comes to competing for NCAA titles, for Division II titles, my goodness, for eighth grade track meets. You should be competing with people in your own gender. It's hard enough people growing at different times. It's hard enough by training and trying to balance the playing field every way possible. And now we're just saying, hey, men, you can go play with women depending on how you feel. What about the women's rights? Why don't they stand up? Incredible. Uh, people directly, and I just can't wait for these people to say it's okay to go up for a headball against a man at a high level. Good luck with that. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.